Gyro Nation Metal. Welcome back to Gyro Nation Metal. As always, my name is Jeff, and I'll be your host. It is my pleasure to speak with someone today who's been a huge part of the Canadian metal scene for years, most notably beginning in 2007 when he joined Cryptopsy. With Cryptopsy, he has released two full-length albums, two EPs, and two compilation albums. Outside of the band, he has aired hundreds of episodes of his well-known podcast, Vox and Hops, since October of 2018. Vox and Hops takes an interesting approach to metal podcasting, as each conversation or guest is paired with a microbrew or craft beer. If you haven't been able to figure out who my guest is today, please welcome Matt McGacky of Cryptopsy and Vox and Hops. Matt, thank you so much for joining me today. Jeff, Jeff, thank you so, so much. It's a pleasure to be here hanging out on the Gyro Nation podcast. But let's do it. Let's have a good time. I'm, I'm in already. I got a beer board in, in true Vox and Hops fashion. Uh, what are you drinking today and why? Perfect. Yeah, I was, uh, I, for, I tend to have a hard time cellaring beers, so I kept some at my in-laws for many years. I was there. It was Canadian Thanksgiving uh, this past weekend, so I dug in the cellar knowing that I'd have this chat, and I pulled out something that uh, has been sitting in there since 2017, actually, so wow. why not is what I figured. This is a, a special brew from a special brewery here in Montreal. It's sort of like an origin story of my craft beer experience, which I imagine is on your list. So let's just hash that question out right away. Uh, St. Arboise is a pretty much macro brewery at this point, but it was micro before. When I first moved to Montreal in 2009 with my wife, there was this mix pack and it had a, in the mix pack, there was an apricot beer. So I would go and buy a 12 pack of beer and then bring it home and be like, well, I bought a 12 pack of beer, that's bad. But I thought about you, my wife, because there's these three apricot beers that you like. So three beers for you, nine for me, and this would get repeated many times. But uh, in that pack, there was a pale ale, which is the classic Saint Ambois uh, flagship beer, let's say. Mm -hmm. And there's so hoppy, soapy almost was how I described it back in the day. And uh, it was hops is really what I, how I discovered like the profile of hops. So so from there it just snowballed into trying more and more hoppy things, being on tour with Cryptopsy, trying some other hoppy brews like Sierra Nevada, all around the same timeline. And then I became a you know craft beer enthusiast. This is a special one. They release it every year, basically around this time actually, which is cool. Mm -hmm. um, it's their Russian Imperial Stout. Uh, it's a eight percent if I no nine point two percent if I remember correctly. And this one is five years old. So let's see let's see how it goes. It didn't explode. That's that's a good step. <laughs> that's that's a good step one. It pours out really dark. I think it's the last one. I, I, I typically used to buy a bunch of these every year and just hang on to them. It's my last one for 2017. It smells amazing. Cheers. How about you? What do you got Cheers, on your man. side? I've got uh, a double dry hopped IPA, double dry hopped hazy IPA called Ring Pop from 88 Brewing here in Calgary. Comes in a nice artsy little can and I haven't actually tried it, so I know sweet fuck all about it. Oh, yeah, I've heard um, really good things about that brewery and I had wake on during the summer and one of them i can't remember if it was brian or the other member of uh, wake was drinking an 88 brew Ooh. they have a, a wicked variety like everything i've tried from them are pretty good um the description of this one and this may or may not interest you but it's a double dry hopped hazy ipa fermented in fast and hot on norwegian kvik yeast you know if i said that properly kvik yes um, uh, it's a sexy, hazy, golden yellow brew that is a tornado of hops, juice, and party. It smells like a boozy tropical fruit salad with a nice touch of red berry provided by the Barbe Rouge and Mosaic hops. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So Mosaic's one of my all favorite hops. Barbe Rouge is, uh, I think it's from Europe, that hops. And Kvik is a Norwegian, or okay. sorry, Icelandic yeast. So mm. it's a wild yeast. It's going to have a more, a little more farmy, funky, flowery flavor profile because of the Kvik side of that. 
Interesting. So it took you obviously a few years to get into beer the way you are now. Um, how did you start developing that palate and um, recognizing those tastes? Trial and error, <laughs> just Fair. like with death metal, just just one beer at a time. <laughs> uh, I am very lucky. I'm from Montreal, and the craft beer scene here in Quebec just has been exploding. And I was mm -hmm. discovering alongside everyone else and every other brewery. There's so many breweries from here. There's so many that open up every year. So there's a lot of products to try. Um, classic breweries such as Saint Ambroise. Ciel Uni Brew are from here. So just like growing up and tasting things, trying things, Boreal is another one, classic brewery from here, and uh, experimenting. And I started doing beer reviews. Um, I was encouraged by my good friend Craig from the VAOS podcast to start doing that, to, to start getting in more contact with breweries. Uh, I am by far not an expert, Craig, and my friend Noah from Beerism are by far much more prolific at describing beers. I tried to stick to three things. That was like the simple, I'm like the simplest craft beer reviewer that you can ever have. I like, what does it look like? What does it smell like? And what does it taste like? Hmm. And if I could find something from that and I could share that with people in layman's terms, I feel like I did my job. So, so this one is obviously dark mm -hmm. with a gorgeous foamy head. It's like, it's like really, it sticks to the sides. It has a beautiful lacy veil, as people would say, but it's like coconut uh, caramel color, the, the veil. It's boozy as hell because it's aged in bourbon. Um, bourbon barrels this brew mm -hmm. the, the bourbon comes through there and then on it has like a bitter coffee chocolate do you find yourself gravitating towards a certain type of beer or is this something that you like to try basically everything i am all over the map but recently i'm really focused on either like crispy beers which would be like pilsners light lagers mm -hmm. uh the new vox and hops collab that just came out uh, is exactly that a light check lager with lapatskayo that was for the brutal Montreal event. Uh, I do love hazy IPAs. I, I really do. I stopped before the chat tonight at my favorite place, La Canette on St. Hubert Street. And, I, and out of the four beers I bought, two of them were hazy IPAs. I, I just love mm -hmm. it. And then I used to, and I still do sometimes drink big, heavy stouts, and, but I haven't in a long time. So I feel like I'm trying to avoid uh, my classic wrap-up question, which is hangover cures. And these ones tend to lead you down. You, you never tend to drink these at the right time of night. Tonight it's early. I'm, doing, I'm hoping that I'm, I've discovered something new. But we tend to drink these late at night and they're bad decision beers, but super mm. fun decisions at the moment. It's probably because you've already had a few at that point, and then exactly. that 9.2 hits you like a sack of hammers. Exactly. Or you reach into like the, the box in my closet of the beers I'm not supposed to drink, and I pull out <laughs> something wacky at 12%. You never know. I don't know if you've ever tried it, but the worst experience I've had with a bad decision beer was probably a Ventinus Doppelbock. No. Um, it's a Bock. I don't really know much about them, unfortunately. Uh, but it was, uh, there's a little bar in Calgary called Bottle Screw Bills. And you go around the world in 80 beers. So within a year, you have to try each of those types. And one of the ones on my list was this Doppelbock. And it was a gigantic bottle. I happened to have like five or six beer beforehand. So when I did put that down, it didn't sit right at all. I had to leave afterwards. And uh, the next day, the hangover was absolute shit. Yeah, you got you to gotta hydrate. And, uh, you know, if you're going to do that, you have to clear your schedule. Totally. 100%. <laughs> not something I used to be good with. <laughs> no, no. I'm, I'm not good at clearing my schedule either. <laughs> <laughs> Mentioned your uh, favorite spot. Was that the place that you just did uh, your live, up, uh, like your face-to-face -face episode the other day, uh, 368? No, no. I've been really, really, really lucky that I teamed up with uh, Turbo House, which is a mm. very cool little bar, showroom bar on St. Denis Street, downtown Montreal. My friends run it, Sergio Michel. Uh, they have been doing Turbo House in different iter iterations, different forms, different locations. This is the fourth location of Turbo House, and uh, it's the one where it's going to stick. Uh, it's doing okay. really well. It's continuously voted best bar in uh, Cult MTM. They do like this massive poll 
mm. um, for everything to do with Montreal, and it's always winning Best Bar. They make killer beers. They have killer beers because I choose them. They make mm. killer cocktails is what I was going to say, and they, it's a nice little showroom. It's where I hosted uh, my one-year anniversary party where I had Lord Worm as my live guest, and it's where I'm hosting my four-year anniversary party coming up. But um, throughout the pandemic, they hit me up or I suggested to them, I can't quite remember, that I could help curate their craft beer list. So I've been doing that ever since. Uh, they hit me up and said, Matt, we need new beers. And I look at a distributor's list and I choose my selection of beers. And then those beers get ordered and the customers drink them up. Interesting. So obviously you can't like everything. So how do you choose beers um, like objectively? I look at it as a what would sell best in this establishment. Okay. I know that their clientele is younger. I know that they like hazy IPAs like everyone does, so I make sure to have at least two or three of those. I try to keep one light lager. I try to keep a bunch of fruity stuff, light light sours. I think uh, th things that sell, things that move, and through experience of working with them, we know what works and what works less. Mm. And what do you think about sours? That's one of my wife's favorite types of beers, and I just can't I get love them. I love them. I, I like specifically the complex uh, mixed fermentation mm. sours where they're like really wild, closer to a wine they're like treated closer as a wine than to a beer although the the sours that are just like with fruit thrown in them are cool too the these smoothie sours i like them very much i don't keep them in my fridge because they're extremely hard to keep stable and most breweries do a good job at that but some of them don't and if you've seen the pictures of any smoothie sours exploding in a fridge you don't want to clean that fridge so i try not to keep that many and if i do buy some i drink them the same day because they tend to be ferment and it's not nice to clean up that's interesting. I've never had that experience. You can Google it. There's there's some nasty nasty fridge pictures out there of these because <laughs> it erupts like 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 a rocket. It's it's interesting because the fruit referments and then it becomes more sugar and then the more sugar creates more fermentation and then it, hmm. the pressure just the can can't handle it and it will just shoot and explode like a rocket. You think that once it was in a can that it would just stop fermenting? Some yeah, but a lot of these beers are not pasteurized, which is the reason why they keep from keep fermenting over time. Okay. That makes more sense. That makes Especially sense. if they're not kept cold. You mentioned that your four-year anniversary is coming up for Fox and Hops. So when you jumped into this thing, was, was this something that you'd see lasting for four years and being as popular as it is? Uh, I knew I needed something. I didn't know if it was going to last for this long. I'm someone that sticks to stuff, right? I've been in crypto mm -hmm. since 2007. I've been with my wife since 2002. I, I, I've been at my work since 2011. I, I, st I have stick-to-itism. <laughs> stick to itness is that one of those two is the right one um but i knew that i needed something because during the year that fox and hops was created um ollie the basis of cryptopsy was asked to join cattle decapitation he's going to do both bands but i was like do it it's a killer band they're amazing humans uh, they're super hype i knew that they were only going to become more popular i was like i wish him the best i was like do it uh flow had told me that the singer for his project with Rune that he had been working on for many years uh, was going to be David Vincent, ex-Morbid Angel. I am Morbid mm -hmm. now. Um, I was like, Chris's studio is always doing well. I was like, I needed something for myself. I needed a side hustle. I needed something to keep me excited in the music industry in case all of them were busy at once and I was at home. So the podcast came sort of as of a necessity and to stay connected within the industry, connected with my peers when I'm not on tour. Uh, once I started doing it, I really enjoyed it, and I'm sort of like, 
never satisfied and always want more. So I like hoarded content and recorded as many interviews as I could. And then all of a sudden I was at 100 episodes and then I just kept going. And then it was like, oh, well, maybe I can get to 200 episodes faster than 100 episodes. The pandemic helped in that factor because everyone was home. I was releasing three episodes a week. I didn't have to go to shows and record face-to-face episodes anymore. I could do it right here from this chair. Mm-hmm. Talk to everyone and anyone across the globe. I can book back-to-back interviews. So I really started hustling through that. But um, no, I, I, four years seems, it seems like the four years went by really quickly. And there's a lot of episodes that came out and a lot of conversations that happened. But the thing that, that sticks the most is really the connections that I've made with either listeners, uh, such as many of the friends that I've made through the online community, the Thirsty Thursday gang, um, the connection that I have with the industry versus what I had before the pod- podcast is, is just, like I had none. I was the singer of Cryptopsy and I did not communicate necessarily with anyone in the industry. It was all via flow. He was the leader of the band. But now I'm, I feel I have the thing, my finger on the pulse of what's happening in the industry, I feel. I have friends that I can write if I want to dig deeper into certain subjects, you know, helping friends showcase their band. If I think that they should maybe, a label should look at someone. It's like something that I can do now and have done recently. I, I think it's interesting. I, the, the podcast has brought me many, many good things, but like connections and a positive community is definitely by far the best. And as I stated in the intro, it's like a very unique way of doing it. Like you're pairing a beer with each conversation. So where did that idea come from? I love beer and I love sharing something with someone. And the beer was really an icebreaker. I still use it like that. It's an easy way to hook up with someone that you don't know and to just share something in common. Talk about that. And then through that, you can dig into deeper subjects. Uh, The the Mm. more I go and the higher I go, let's say, the more prolific artists that I'm speaking with, more and more of them tend to be sober. So the beer has actually become a detriment in certain instances that I cannot speak to certain people. I have a ways around that, and I've started partnering up with Pitch Black North, which is actually from your neck of the woods, uh, Pitch Black North, the satanic tea company, Mm -hmm. uh, where he will sponsor those episodes and ship them out, some satanic tea, and we will share that over the course of our conversation. But even still then, some people just don't want to be associated to anything related to alcohol because it just brings them back negative uh, energy, and I respect that. But uh, no, I love craft beer. It was a huge passion of mine, still is. Uh, When I decided that I wanted to have a podcast, it was like easy that I wanted to put two together because they were my two passions at the time. I was listening to a lot of podcasts. I thought that I could host something like this. And I loved craft beer. I was like, a, I was a hunter. I would go out. I would see this picture on the internet, and it's definitely not the right way of doing it. But this is how I used it. I would go to every store and try to find something, even though it's not even distributed yet. Yep. That's that's how crazy it was. So when you first started getting into podcasts and reaching out into bands, did you have trouble finding guests at first, or was it something that was relatively easy because of your involvement with Cryptopsy? It was so easy. The first hundred episodes were my friends. The first hundred and twenty episodes with my friends, and then I started getting hit up by publicists suggesting that I have conversations with their artists. But uh, the first the first hundred were just my friends. They would come through town. I would walk down to the venue and I would be like, okay, you're first, uh, you're second, and then you're third. And I would walk them one by one to a local bar, same buck at the time, um, to sit down and share a beer. And then I'd walk them back and then, okay, you're next, and then bring them. And I would record stack content like that with whatever show was coming through. Mm-hmm. And I, I would never see any of the shows, though. I would, <laughs> I would constantly just be walking and talking with people. And I would do this, I, I would do this, you know, two, three times a month sometimes. And then I'd have months worth of content. And then the pandemic hit. So mm. 
that's when I started just, oh, everyone's home. I can write, let me write Randy from Lamb of God. Let's, let's see. And I've known Randy since 2002, 2003. He was just releasing his non-alcoholic ghost walker via Brewdog. So he was like, oh, perfect. A beer podcast. I can promote my new beer on it. It worked. So, so no, it was all friends. It's all friends until the publicists found me. And there's certain publicists that I have relationships with that I enjoy working with and that we mutually share benefits from working together so I save spots for them and that's how I've been working for the past two three years and you basically built this from the ground up you started as like more of a passion project but now you have a team um, I'm assuming that you have an artist and stuff like that so when did you start morphing it in from like just a hobby into something like this I think it just gradually happened over time I have mottos but at first something that very important that we did is I've always collaborated with my wife she's the producer of the podcast and she knew at the beginning that we needed to develop a brand, hmm. whether it was a hobby or not. So we worked with Andrew Tremblay, who does work with Imperial Triumphant. He does stuff with a bunch of other art. Uh, he's awesome. He's from New York, and he's amazing. So he designed like the whole logo, the skull and hops bones that uh, is iconic for Vox and Hops now. He did the first few merch designs. Um, most of the, the visuals to aspects that you see of Vox and Hops is Andrew Tremblay. So right from the beginning, my wife just knew that this had to be happened, and we invested, and we spent money that we didn't have because there was no money. And uh, it was worth it. It definitely paid off, uh, 100%, 100%. And then over time, my mottos helped me build into bigger and bigger schemes, and those mottos were the first year was baby steps towards greatness. So I was just building, and I needed to talk to people. And I, that's another thing that I think is important for the podcast is that I'm not afraid to ask for help. I'm by far not expert in any means in anything mm -hmm. I, I really just am not afraid to ask for help and to ask someone and if they say no then next you know I'll move on to the next and I'll ask them again in six months and see how that goes um, the second year was uh, just keep going don't stop just keep going it was year two because that's there was some momentum mm -hmm. and I had to just keep pushing um, the third year was focus on the future that was during the pandemic when that happened, and I was seeing that I needed to put goals ahead of me to, to accomplish certain tasks. And then now this recent year has been focused on what's important, because you can focus on the future and have goals and push as hard as you want towards something. But if you're not caring for other aspects of your life because you're so hyper-focused on this success, the other things will dwindle and, and the other things will suffer because you're too focused somewhere else. So I'm a father of two children. Um, spending time with them is a priority number one, and that's far more important than researching for a guest or answering an email or anything else. So, so that's something that I've really had to drill into myself to be a good human, mm -hmm. to make myself feel good. Well, it's good that you can balance like everything. I mean, with, with the nightlife going out and seeing the shows, you can balance the podcast. You're obviously devoted to your wife and children, and you're still in the band. That's a lot of things to balance at one time. It's brutal. <laughs> <laughs> it's horrible <laughs> every day it's one day at a time and i focus on uh, what's important and then and i try to classify how to make it happen and recently shows are back so mm -hmm. i'm out late at night again conducting face-to-face -face interviews once again which is amazing but uh then i gotta wake up and go to work so it's like a balance of everything and trying to care for myself is also like a big priority that me and my wife are trying to instill into ourselves it was a goal for this year i don't feel like we've hit all the nails in that goal, it's going to be another refocus goal for next year to really focus on our health, uh, be it uh, sleeping properly, um, drinking in moderation, and uh, just you know caring for ourselves as much as we care for everything else. 
one thing I really like about you so far is that you're you're quite humble and down to earth. However, you're you've reached level of success and you're still looking forward to the future and grounding yourself constantly. Oh, I'm never I find that some people like they just let everything get ahead of them and then they they lose track of what's truly important. And I I, I just like that you picked that up. That's awesome. I'm never never satisfied. I I spent my whole life wanting to play Vakken. I mm-hmm. played Vakken, and now I want to play Vakken on the bigger stage. It's 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 the story of my life. <laughs> yeah, it ca- it seems like every time you reach a goal, you just you want to continue, and it doesn't necessarily mean getting bigger or better. It's just like now I'm on to the next thing. Now I want to do something new. Something I'm always that makes sad. Accomplished. I'm sort of sad when I've reached a goal because then mm-hmm. I'm like, what's next? Is this it? Is this the pinnacle? Is this where it's going to be? Am I happy if that's it? It's like building a car. As soon as the journey's done, it's like, all right, well, on to the next project. Yeah. That's 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 what a lot of the, my little things have been, such as doing the Heavy Montreal Presents, uh, brutal events that I've done. I've done two so far. Uh, the first one we did by the skin of our teeth with the health restrictions, is all I'll say, in December last year. But it was massively successful and super fun. And then we just did a new one in September. But every time I finish these, I'm like, is there going to be a next one? Uh, you work for months trying to build something. You build it, and then it's like, it's over. It was fun, though. <laughs> <laughs> now, after airing about 370 episodes, um, w- looking back, when are so, which are some of your most memorable episodes and why? Um, um, first anniversary, Lord Worm, live at Turbo House. Uh, he was on. He was uh, a showman. He's always awesome, but that night he was particularly awesome. I had set up the chairs face-to-face with the crowd over here so that it would be us as if we're at a bar having a mm-hmm. chat. I didn't want it to become too much of a spectacle. And when he showed up before doors, he like took his chair and turned towards the crowd. And I was like, oh shit, we're in for a ride. And he was on, <laughs> it was amazing. It was one of the best episodes I've ever done. Um, anytime with George Fisher, Corpse Grinder from Cannibal Corpse is always fun. He's uncontrollable. He will talk forever. And <laughs> Especially if it's about football. <laughs> or anything, no matter what you say to him, he will talk for, for and he's very hard to direct and to control. I typically, both times I've had him, and I hate doing this, and I don't do this, but for him, I make exceptions. There's like a time limit, and uh, it's so hard to control, and it's hard to get in everything you want, but I still love those conversations. Uh, Manuel from Zeal and Ardor was a pleasure. One of my favorite great connections, like someone that I've never met. We know a lot of common people, but mm-hmm. instantly I felt like, oh, I feel like, I feel like this guy's my friend after we finished the chat, and then he came through Montreal not too long ago, and he completely remembered me, and instantly like hugs and like that was cool and we hung out after the show and shared a brew those moments you know that there's a lot of great connections and it's the connections it's like making friends Mm -hmm. that's the the really special thing that we get to do through podcasting because it's such a long form interview and it's i try to be different than any standard press that they're doing so i i get to stand out and i think that's that's people are appreciative of that 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 i'm not asking so how's the tour um talk to me about the record I try to find mm-hmm. something special, always. It seems like, I mean, there's always like a common goal, I guess, when you're chatting with somebody because you're talking about mere, uh, music, sorry, and it's pointed in one direction, but you can encapsulate like any kind of subject matter, but it's not necessarily the formal, or formal one, like subjects. I guess I was kind of rambling there for a minute. No, no, I got you. No, no you're 100% right, because especially because I'm getting pitched up through a publicist, mm-hmm. so we have to talk about the record. But I'll keep that for like, let's say 20, 30 minutes into the conversation, mm-hmm. talk about the record and then we'll move somewhere else or like diverge from that conversation about the record into stuff that interests them. If you can find something that interests, everyone has like that passion, right? And if you can mm-hmm. find that, the guest will speak, the guest will speak openly. 
Uh, you'll, you'll, all of their inhibitions will go down, especially after them drinking a 9% beer. <laughs> You're almost on to your second. <laughs> no, no, I'm doing good. <laughs> no, no, it's, uh, podcasting is a special medium, and uh, I'm happy that I found it, and I, I found, find myself very appreciative of everything that has brought me in these short four years. You obviously had to overcome some challenges. So what were some of those you didn't expect as a vocalist? Um, ner I'm always nervous before playing a show, and the same thing would happen with podcasting, and the same thing happens whether it's in, per in person a little bit less. Maybe like as we're like walking to the chat, I'm a bit more nervous before the fact that we sit down. But like prior to like a virtual podcast, I still get the same nerves that I get going on stage, where I feel like this is going to be a show. Am I prepped enough? Did I fuck up? Uh, mispronouncing like we're lucky because we're in control of the content so we can edit it so that it sounds perfect that's true but that experience <laughs> of the artist will remember that i called him you know tim instead of jeff <laughs> <laughs> which i haven't done i don't think i've done anyways but uh, as a vote no i remember i remember being nervous and sitting with danny marino episode one and danny said to me matt played vakin you can do this <laughs> and i did that time and 370 other ones it's interesting that you're still nervous after um, after being on stage in so many prolific um, events yeah. and then also doing this for so long. And it's kind of cool to hear because I know that there are people that are holding themselves back from creative endeavors because of their nervousness or because they're stepping out of their comfort zone. Absolutely. But like podcasting is the best because we're in complete control of the content. So if you, you stutter or if you make mistakes and, and you learn throughout time too, like there's these mannerisms that we all have as we speak and we hate them. But I've learned over time to how... When in editing afterwards, I know how to make it so that my editing job is perfect. So if I, if I mess up saying something, I'll just stop and then say it again perfectly so that when I'm editing, I don't have to go try to piece stuff mm -hmm. together, which is long and annoying. I just take it from the perfect spot. But um, yeah, the nerves are a real thing. And people, just be creative, mm -hmm. people. You know, don't, don't, don't let any... Like, we are our own worst critics. That's the truth. And you've already said a few things that are good advice pieces. I'm just wondering if you have any other advice for um, either prospective podcasters or prospective vocalists that are just starting out. I should buy a good mic. That's, that's level number one. Personally, I really, I've had them both, and these are like classic microphones. Is, uh, <laughs> is, uh, um, and, I, and I have the, the most basic podcast setup. I use a Sennheiser E935, and I like that for when I'm out in the world doing podcasts because it's like, it only captures exactly what's coming. There's a word for this and I should know the end. There's Omni versus something, something. I'm not the most techie guy, uh, but it won't pick up the surrounding sounds the way a Shure will. The Shure SM58, which is the classic uh, mic that everyone has used in their life. If they've sang karaoke or anything, it's the classic microphone. So at first I picked up a Shure and it picks up all the bar sounds and it's annoying when you're editing and it sounds annoying. But if you get two, uh, Sennheiser E935s, you will only hear, when that person is speaking to that mic, you will basically only hear that person's voice. So, And on stage, I also use that microphone. So get a good mic. I would suggest that one. It's not overly expensive. It's about 250 bucks. Completely worth it. But if you're going to do a podcast, you need two of them, if there's going to be a guest. But it's it's worth it. Invest the extra 100 bucks. It's about 100 bucks more than a than a Shure SM58, but it's completely different. It's funny that you mentioned the SM58 because that's what I use. And um, listening back to some podcasts, I can hear my daughter upstairs just screaming in the background. I'm like, oh, that was before bedtime. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I've had those too. But we do the, I have two interview slots, basically. I do a Saturday afternoon for European time slots. For European bands, sorry, a Saturday afternoon slot for European mm -hmm. bands. And I do a Thursday night for North American bands. And... Um, 
Totally. I can just totally Saturday afternoons when my wife is trying to wrangle the kids <laughs> into being quiet in their bedroom. Eh, unsuccessfully, but, you know, it adds for the charm of that episode, and not everything is going to be perfect, right? And when we listen back to it, we will remember that. And uh, when I had Matt Heafy on, I was live on his Twitch. Uh, my son was in the room playing cars with me because that was how that day turned out. He was super cool because he also has three-year-old twins, and he's like, dude, my kids, you can hear them screaming in the background on my Ibaraki album. It's, it's the way it is. It's, 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 not everything has to be perfect and shiny and, and absolutely flawless. There, there should be little weirdnesses with stuff. And I, I, that, that took me a long time, too, especially my intros. I don't know about you, but my intros and outros, I am the most peculiar and the most picky when editing versus just the conversation. Still with podcasting, I'm just wondering what the most rewarding thing is. You talked about um, a lot of friendships that you've made and connections. Um, I guess, you know what, I, that's probably it, hey? For sure, it's the connections and the sense of community. It's, it's easily that. It's, it's, when I started it, it wasn't the plan. It was just to keep me occupied. And the amount of closeness that I've developed within the industry, when locally here, being with local promoters, um, local photographers, uh, local media, like the, it's, it's unbelievable the, what me sitting down and sharing a beer with a fellow metal musician has brought me. Yeah, it's got to be it's got to be a really cool um sense of community there just having people that do the same thing as you like for me coming mm-hmm. uh, coming to the podcasting front as just a metal fan um sometimes i still get starstruck i still get that moment too still get oh, yeah. that that starstruck can't believe i'm talking to this person but i act real cool and i'm like <laughs> yeah you know remember that time that i played that show just like you but there was way less people there <laughs> but i don't <laughs> I act, I act, I try to act as cool as I can to, to create like a rapport. <laughs> you don't know Cryptopsy? We're really big, trust me. <laughs> so moving into Montreal, you actually, uh, you moved there before getting involved with Cryptopsy. I am from Montreal. Okay. I'm from okay. just outside Montreal, a small city called Dermaltang, mm-hmm. two mountains. Um, it's outside, about 35 minutes car ride outside of Montreal in the north. Uh, I grew up there my whole life. There was a small English community there. Over the time, it's become more and more francophone, which is fine. It's cool. Uh, I went to French elementary school. Uh, I met my wife there, who's francophone. And um, yeah, and then I moved to Montreal in 2009 to live with my wife. And uh, we've been living in close to here. Um, not downtown, because it's a bit too busy for me, but on the island of Montreal. And so you were also part of Three Mile Scream. And that was before Cryptopsy. So did you, you obviously moved into Montreal before that ad was put on hold. That is correct, or yes, Ish. yes. And, and Three Mile Scream is a big reason as to why everything else has happened in my life, and it's because of Mike Marino. I say this all the time. As much as I can, I thank Mike Marino. Uh, he called me. I was at my parents' house, and I was like, Matt, uh, we need this singer. Can you come? And I went and tried out and joined Three Mile Scream. He was like, it's going to be like Seven Dust meets Incubus meets Taproot. And I was like, I'm in, because I wasn't a death metal head at all. I was like a new metal child and like Mike Patton. So I joined that band, and I was like, I'm only going to sing like Mike Patton. They were like, Whatever. We just need a singer. So <laughs> I joined that band, and then over time, yeah, yeah, I was still living at my parents in Two Mountains at that time. Uh, Three Mile got signed. Um, that went well. We started touring a little bit, and then sadly the band fell apart uh, due to uh, time happening. It's just sometimes things don't work out. Uh, I joined Cryptopsy, and I was still in Three Mile. I actually said no to Flo when he asked me to join Cryptopsy. Uh, the first time, I was like, no, I'm going to make it with Three Mile because we were doing really well. And then the leader, Mike Marino, left Three Mile. And then I called Flo back and I was like, do you still need a singer? And Flo was like, yes. So I tried out and then I got the gig. 
Interesting. So you went from not really even liking death metal to being a lead singer of one of the most prolific Canadian death metal bands in history. That's true. I remember the first time I heard Cryptopsy, I was on the train back to Two Mountains because there was a train to Two Mountains from Montreal. And uh, Luke Orr, my friend, showed me Phobophile from Nunso Live with Mathlain Akwa on vocals. And I was like, what the fuck is this? this is, I don't like, what is he saying? I don't understand at all. And then I played with Cryptopsy a bunch of times. I remember actually the first time that I heard like the name outside of that, Mike Marino had gone to see Cryptopsy. He kept talking about how good Flo was and how you couldn't even see his hands. He was so good. And then we played with them a bunch of times Three Mouse Scream opening for Cryptopsy in Toronto a bunch of times for some reason. And then when I had said no to them, and then I went to go open for them, uh, which was, might have been, it was probably one of La Lord Worm's last shows with them. I was like, fuck, I made a mistake. They're amazing. This is awesome. But I wasn't a death metal head. I, I really got into death metal slowly. New Metal Child, you know, Korn, um, Deftones, Tool, um, Slipknot, heavier and heavier. And then I, I bought Cannibal Corpse's Kill. Don't know why I bought it, but I bought it. And I was like, oh my God, this guy's vocal is amazing. He can understand everything he's saying. It's so fast. It's so brutal. I tried to slip some of that into it. I was in the Lamb of God at the time, too. And just uh, kept getting more and more and more extreme. And then I fell into Cryptopsy. Definitely not a death metal vocalist. And that's what they wanted at the time for The Unspoken King. And then we all know what happened with that album. And then it took me a few years to get my footing back. And I feel like I'm a decent death metal vocalist now. It's funny that you mentioned the album, too, because that was actually my first Cryptopsy album. Mm. My friend Nick Foster, who used to play bass for Divinity, he introduced me to a lot of metal. It just so happened that that album came out at around that time. Fast forward a few years later, and I was listening to, I think, your interview with Metal Injection or Metal Sucks. I can't remember exactly which one. And metal exactly Sucks, one. I think I did, yeah. And you were talking about how uh, you weren't happy with your performance on the, the album and how you looked like introspectively yourself and, and made like real steps in order to progress your vocals and become better. Yeah, it was a, the band was all over the place was more so the issue. I definitely tried my best. I just wasn't a death metal vocalist. I, I gave them the best performances that I could give. Listening back now, we've listened, I've listened to it probably a year ago. Now there's, there's some tracks that work, but it's, it's so fragmented and weird and the band was not cohesive in any way. And I mm -hmm. think that was the, the main issue with The Unspoken King is that the band had no cohesive vision of what this album was going to be. What is Cryptopsy in 2008, 2007, whatever. That is the main issue with The Unspoken King. I delivered what they wanted. Was it good? All of it? No. Some of it's decent. Uh, definitely not a death metal vocalist, but over time it took time for me to learn how to do it properly, especially performing all the old material. I'm glad there's the internet exists and there's probably some there is some stuff out there people shouldn't watch that <laughs> Summer Slaughter 2008 if you want to google it it's, it's not good <laughs> did you guys was everybody we didn't, in do, we didn't do Canada no we did the states okay that's what I was going to say I'm like I don't remember you guys headlining Canada which pisses me off because that was one of the best um, that was the best death metal tour in the country it was really cool I went to the Montreal show and I said hi to people but I was not on that tour. I was in the States version, which was really sick, too. It was a really, you know, Whitechapel opening. Mm -hmm. Unbelievable. Psychroptic, Born of Osiris, um, The Faceless, Despised Icon, Cryptopsy, Vader, um, Cataclysm, Black Dahlia Murder. That's a tour. That's insane. Yeah, it was amazing. It was, yeah. And I was young and nervous, and I should have had more fun rather than worrying about what everyone was thinking about my vocal performance. So were you thinking that going through the tour, or was this something that oh, you were the looking whole time. back at after yeah. you showed? No, no, the whole time. Oh, Every really? show was... Because we had, we, had we had death threats. We had 
What? People people really didn't like that album. <laughs> you had death threats because the album was Because of the Unspoken King, yeah. That doesn't make sense. Yeah, people there was it was back in MySpace. That's still so stupid. So there was like a, a, like fake pages that were made, yeah. death threats thrown at us, we hope you crash and die. Unbelievable people smashed our window. Yeah. You know, you could get the same point across by saying, hey, I hope your next album's better. Or, hey, I will listen to the first X number of albums. Yeah. I like that era of Cryptopsy. Thank you for those albums. <laughs> That's so fucking weird. I can't believe people would give you death threats over something that, like, you guys were just trying to figure things out. And they... No, I think the, big, the main issue was that we, were, we handled the backlash wrong. We were, we were very egotistical about it and juvenile with our approach as to how we responded to people not appreciating the unspoken king and and over time and hindsight is always better right the, the we shouldn't have done that intro that we did on summer slaughter where we made fun of the keyboard troll warriors that were bashing us uh there's something to be said about making fun of those guys too though it was really fun to record though <laughs> with cryptopsy kind of being all over the place during that album was that do you think partly because you guys were trying to change your sound and with the injection of a new member or was it just something because you guys weren't communicating at that time i wasn't i can't really say exactly what it was i have a suspicion as to what happened and it sort of happened on once was not at the same time but they sort of had more control over the sound at that time john levassar was leaving cryptopsy during once was not he had written some material and they just basically continued in that vein between that and the Unspoken King, certain members, Flo, let's say, wanted, and Eric too, wanted to incorporate some clean vocals into the sound of Cryptopsy, which is avant-garde and very cool, and a lot of people do that now. Mm -hmm. Cryptopsy, once again, 12, 10 years before everyone else is doing what other people are doing 10 years later. Um, I feel like without John there as the driving creative force, the, let's say, what's, what's the right word? Um, like a guard, basically, protecting what Cryptopsy is. I feel like that was lost on that album. Everyone had an opinion, and sometimes in a band, someone has to have the final word, and someone has to fight for the sound of a band. And I feel mm. like on that album, no one was doing that. Donaldson was new. He has two, three songs, two songs on the album, and you know which ones are. You can listen to the album, and you'll pick them out right away. The, the other, it was like a mishmash of people's songs, and it feels like that. That, that's that's the main problem with that band, that album. So then, what were the biggest steps between that and your next album? John 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 came back. Mm. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> John came back to make things feel all good again. <laughs> but a funny story about that, and I've said it before, is that uh, we called Don to come back or floated it because of, <laughs> and uh, Don was like, "It's me with the phone." Um, he's like, "I haven't played guitar in seven years. My guitar's been in the cupboard for seven years." Yeah. Yeah. And. He's like, no, I'm not ready. And then he waited five months and started playing guitar again. He called Flo back and said, I'm ready now. <laughs> then he nice. came back with like the album. And he's the type of, type of guy that writes in his head and has to get it out in the guitar. But the riffs are in his head already, which is amazing. He's a, a special breed, special breed of a musician. Very talented. A gatekeeper, protector of the sound of Cryptopsy. Put us back on the map. Um, Self-titled was amazing. Our first uh, independent album, uh, which was very cool and avant-garde also at the time uh, one of probably the first early death metal bands to release something on Bandcamp mm -hmm. was the main way to release it that we released it back then so that and CD Baby that's how we released the, <laughs> the self-titled <laughs> which which my wife helped producing once again producer mind uh, helped us find all that 
a lot of people, from what I've seen online, they, they consider like uh, Nun So Vile kind of like the penultimate Cryptopsy album. Like, have you ever felt pressure trying to live up to that? It's different, right? It's, and, and they could have rested on their laurels and just kept doing Nun So Vile records. They could have done that, but they didn't. They did Whisper Supremacy. They changed vocalists. They went into a more hardcore vocalist sound, much more technical. Cryptopsy is never, never comfortable, and they always wanted to push themselves. Uh, myself, I always try to do what's best for myself. I want to be the best me that I could be right now. That's how I focus as an artist. I can't be as good as Lord Worm in 1996 because I didn't live or do any of the things that he lived, have the experiences that he experienced. I can only experience my experiences. Uh, in 2017, we did, however, play Nun So Vile in its entirety, and that was a, was a, a lot of work to try to really understand this album's concepts and feelings and weird time signatures because Lord Worm sings in his own time signatures and sometimes doesn't sing any of the words that he has on the paper, so you have to <laughs> decipher what's going on there. But it was a lot of work and it was really fun. But uh, pressure, no, I, I put a lot of pressure on myself all the time for everything, but living up to the legacy, no, I just try to do the best and I try to make sure that the fans have a good time while putting my own little spin on it while being respectful to the original format. I like that approach. You're not like trying to take control of the band and change it completely, but you're also kind of um, adapting and evolving with the band as they move forward. I have to, because they're never, they're never satisfied. They're always moving just as much as me. Mm -hmm. uh, Chris Donaldson now is the gatekeeper of Cryptopsy's sound. He's, he's assumed that role. It took him a long time to assume the role. He was always felt like an imposter, a John Lavassar imitator. Mm -hmm. It's taken him a lot of years to feel comfortable writing for Cryptopsy, knowing what Cryptopsy sounds like, what it should sound like, and it's really been reflecting uh, throughout the Book of Suffering tomes, tome one, tome two, and now with the new album, which will eventually come out next year, hopefully, we're finished most of it, uh, full-length album on a record label that I can't announce, sadly, uh, but it's, uh, yeah, we're, we're no longer independent and we're releasing a full-length album for the first time since 2012. It'll be, it'll be, you know, it'll be 11 years later. No, I thought you guys released both EPs and then you had the compilation albums, which keep people interested and they keep people wanting to come back. So I think a full-length album is definitely going to be welcome. Do you guys have a title? I think it's a good idea. Uh, we do, but I can't announce. I can't announce anything. Do you know, um, do you have like artwork worked out and everything? I am working on it right now with people right now. Are you able to say who you're working with? I can also not say that. <laughs> I was hoping to get something, but that's okay. It's great though. It's, it's, I'm excited. It's, uh, the music is dark. It's cryptopsy. It's twisted. Uh, it's, comfortable but very uncomfortable at the same time we just we sort of like wanted to sit on riffs a little bit longer but definitely not as long as most people do mm -hmm. there's moments where like oh yeah this is awesome and oh and it's gone there's you know that whisper surprise there was so many moments like that where like they should have repeated that for like five times but they didn't they do it one and a half times so we try to like sit on parts a little bit longer ever as long as most bands do we are always try to make it uncomfortable make it strange um it's memorable, mm -hmm. uh, catchy in that earworm sense, the way that certain unsolvile riffs are, but definitely very groovy at the same time. Uh, we worked really hard, me and Chris, uh, this summer. I took a week of my vacation to go hang out at his house with my family. He lives next to a lake, so I came with the family and the kids, and he has kids too. He has a child too. And we would like track in the morning, and then during the day we'd go to the beach, and then I'd come home, and then we'd eat supper, and then I'd track a second song. So we'd track in two songs a day that way. It was uh, very immersive because I'd never done that. I would typically always go to work and then go track afterwards. So it's, it's interesting to be so immersed in a studio with Donaldson, and he's, he's a genius. He's a pleasure to work with. Um, he pushed me hard, and I did uh, a whole new vocal approach for the first time. Uh, just all guttural screams, uh, 
false chord screams, the whole thing, no more fry screams, uh, which is what I typically always use for my cryptopsy voice. But when I started doing Nunso, uh, the, the Nunso vial tour, I discovered this, that's not true, but I discovered it on Tome 2, this whole like false chord guttural thing that I used to do with Three Mile Scream, but I brought it back after the Tome 2 tours whenever I would play Lord Worm songs, and Chris was like, that's awesome, we should do that, the whole next album, that's the voice. And so I've been messing around with that, and it's the voice that I can do like at any point in time, it's just a voice that I have, and uh, I use that the whole record, and I'm happy with it, he's happy with it, he says it's all of our best performances, uh, we'll see, we'll see what happens. I'm looking forward to it. What's a fry scream? A fry scream is like a sort of like a very quiet, um, pushed tone where your your vocal cords are very much together, but you use like the the flappy, weird uh, tissues at the top of your throat, mouth to hmm. create a sound. A lot of death metal vocals use fry screams, whereas a false chord scream is more closely linked to a uh, throat singing. How do you foster each of those like skills? It's it's work. It's um, the the false chord one is a more natural scream. It's much more open and there's much more like flesh vibrating, whereas a false chord is much more harder to work at. It's something you have to work out much more to to hone in on creating the proper sounds without pushing too much, because you're pushing, but you're you're it's all about air control and where you're directing that air pressure. And if you push too much, is that where the damage comes from then? I think so, yeah, because the, 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 in the false chord, your, your, your vocal cords are directly rubbing, which is where any damage will happen. You'll get the, the nod, you can get nodules if you do it over many, many courses of experiences of uh, friction. I didn't realize that. That's cool. You've taught me so much today already. Well, thank you. I'm by far not an expert. There's many, many amazing people that I've interviewed that you can interview as well, such as uh, David Benitez from Extreme Vocal Institute, Mary Z, Voice Hacks, Sebastian Carato from uh, The Monster Factory and Necrotic Mutation, Necrotic Mutation and Necrotic Mutation. Those, those guys are the real deal. How did you learn to scream originally? Did you have a vocal coach or was this something that you kind of pursued on your own? I learned, I got, I was trained to be a Broadway singer is what I was trained to be. They want, she wanted me to, I can't remember her name, she wanted me to sing for Sept Soleil. That was her plan for yeah. me because we're from Montreal, so it's it's possible back then. Uh, I didn't listen, and I just wanted to be a rock metal singer, and I should have listened to her because I don't know, Six Day is pretty cool. <laughs> <laughs> and then screaming, I just I just kept getting heavier and heavier. And, and you know, Mike Patton is one thing where you're pushing. Yeah. And then Randy Bly was another big. Listening to him for some reason, is I sort of unlocked a little false chord. A little fry scream control the tiny little witch voice that like turns into more of like a lower tonality is something that helped me a lot there air control no it's 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 all trial and error and hmm. pushing pushing yourself and, and doing it if you don't do it you'll forget definitely it's like a language it is it's weird yeah do you remember the first extreme metal song that you thought i nailed this oh i was probably like doing it <laughs> like, like on stage, you know? I was, I don't know, probably with Three Mile Scream. Yeah. The early iterations of Three Mile Scream, maybe. Yeah. Because I'm never someone that would like just put stuff out and like jam to it. Like I didn't sing. I would sing, sing in the shower, but not scream, sing. <laughs> yeah, when my wife hears me scream in the shower, she's like, get the fuck away. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I did, during the pandemic, I, was, I had to jam for, for Brutal Montreal and I would just jam in my bedroom or jam like... They were like, you're so loud, go away. And I was like, I'm in my room, you go away. <laughs> you're like, I'm as far away as I can be. Yes, this is it. 
Okay, so now you've been involved in Cryptopsy, you've had Vox and Hops for quite a few years. Um, you also do a lot of collabs with different breweries. So what was your mm -hmm. first step like getting involved with a brewery and how was the collaboration process? I became friends. I was thinking about this today, actually. I was like, how did I organize that and think about doing that? I remember thinking about doing, I was on vacation and I had the two-year anniversary of the podcast coming up. Actually, no, because my first collab was for my one-year anniversary and it was with Le Fermentau. And I just wrote them. I said, I'm having this party. Can you make me a beer? Not can. They didn't can beers at the time. They just had a pub. Mm -hmm. So they did. They did that. I went to the brewery with Jeff, who plays an anonymous, and the Famatao. And we brewed a, a New England IPA, a hazy, and we had it for that Lord Worm chat. And then for the second year, I was like, oh, well, let's do it again. And I hit up Patty from Overhop, friends, and I just wrote them and I said, let's, let's make a beer together. And she was like, okay, yes. When do you want to release it? Okay, cool. Let me push this beer to fit it into the schedule. And then I went to Brew Day. It was, we, I sent them some artwork from uh, that Andrew Trombley had made, uh, just like assets. And their artist, Valter, uh, amazing Brazilian artist, created, uh, I have it here, created this image, which is funnily enough, and it's in a little cactus because <laughs> Overhop always gives these things. Oh, that's cool. Out. And they created Vox and Overhops, which is funny because when I started the podcast, Overhop is, is a brewery that I like, and I was like, imagine if I made a beer called Vox and Overhops with Overhop, and I did. Um, <laughs> so that happened, and then over the course of the pandemic, I just started asking people. I was like, let's, let's, can you make me a collab? And they would make me a collab. Um, we would talk about the artwork, we'd talk about the beer. It was something creative, something fun to keep us busy during the pandemic. Then I had the idea of doing a Brutal North America, which is where I paired 22 bands, past guests from the podcast, with breweries from across North America, hmm. all across Canada, all, all across Canada, all across Canada, Canada. <laughs> all across Canada and the United States. And I released 22 beers in one week at the end of June in 2021, I want to say. That makes sense. In 2021. And uh, that was intense. That was, that was very intense. That was a lot of work. That was really just like Zoom meetings where I would like, hang out with the band and the brewery and be like, what beer are we going to make? Let's make a beer. What kind of beer are we going to, what do you like? Can you make that? And I was like, okay, this works, this works. Boom, let's do it. And then they made the beer and then they got the beer and they were happy and they took pictures with the beer and it was awesome. It was a, it was a lot of work though. It was, that was, that was extremely intense. I'm not sure I'll that do it. That does sound like a lot. 22 at one time, basically. It's like 44 emails every time I had to write someone. <laughs> <laughs> it was really intense. Uh, but it was cool, and it connected me with a lot of breweries that I wasn't connected with, and I was just cold calling people. I was like, hey, I'm Matt. Uh, do you want to make a beer for this band that lives in your area? And typically a lot of them were like, yes. Sometimes I would get nothing. Sometimes I wouldn't. I, I planned it like months in advance so they would fit into their schedule. Mm -hmm. uh, so I did that. I've done, I've done a lot. I think I've done almost... I've been saying with my wife, I think I've almost an 80 beer collabs in the, since the podcast started. That's incredible. That's incredible. Yeah. And you've worked with people all across the country. Um, have you worked with people in the States as well, like uh, breweries? Yeah, yeah I have okay. breweries in the States, breweries in, in, in Canada. My goal, I have a new project coming up for 2023 where I want to do global. And it's about mosh pit culture. It's about educating people about what happens in mosh pits and different things that could happen at a metal show all through the love of craft beer. So that's my goal. So, so there'll be beers such as Stage Dive, uh, Crowd Surf, Circle Pit, Wall of Death. And then on the can, it's going to be like, a wall of death is when. And we'll describe. <laughs> I love that. That's, that's my, my, my new global beer pit culture. Sorry. Mosh pit culture. Beer pit um, works cola. too. <laughs> no, but beer pit is uh, already belongs to someone else. That doesn't work. Okay, fair no, enough. No, fair that, enough. that belongs to uh, 
Slipknot to uh, not fist. Um, <laughs> that's why it's a good idea. Uh, <laughs> that's why it's a good name. They have all the good names. Um, yes, but uh, that's the next. That's the next big big project. But I have four collabs coming up for the four year anniversary. Uh, one here in in Montreal with Saint Cambadon. One in Toronto with Folly Brewing. One in Chicago with Miskatonic, and one in Atlanta with Little Cottage, Little Cottage Brewing. I tried to have one in Calgary, but it didn't pan out. And I love you, Drew, if you're listening, and I'm not upset in any way. Didn't you work with New Level, though, in Calgary here? Exactly. Drew, Drew. Exactly. Oh. I asked him to do a four-year collab for me, but it didn't pan out. It's okay. I love him still. I thought there was another project that you worked with, New Level. There was. They made a beer for me with uh, Striker for the Brutal North American. Mm -hmm. They made a Pitch Black North, a Cryptopsy, and New Level Brewing, the, uh, the satanic tea, the Nun So Vile, where we mm -hmm. put the tea in the beer and they put the hops in the tea. Nun So Vile. Except it was N-U-N. Nun So Vile. How did that work out? I wasn't able to try it. It was awesome. It was a great. It was a blackened haze. Um, Interesting. Lavender sour. It was, it was really good. Yeah, I noticed that I saw the picture just the other day of the lavender sour portion, and I was just like, I'm confused. I don't know how that would taste. Because lavender, you wouldn't think, goes with, with like a sour taste. It worked. It was like flowery, and it worked. But my original idea, and I still like my original idea a little bit better than what happened, was that I wanted to challenge Drew to make a, a hopless beer. Because hmm. hops, what you use hops to do, uh, is to bitter the beer because beer when you just boil the, the mash part of it it's extremely sweet so you want to use hops to bitter it so that it, it becomes more balanced so i wanted him to use tea to bitter hmm. the beer as opposed to hops and i wanted to call the beer born hopless like the cryptopsy song born headless one day if anyone wants to do that i, I that's i'm in <laughs> You'll get a call in a couple days. For sure. That'd be cool. You never. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I say things like this all the time on the podcast, and people call me. <laughs> That's awesome. You don't even have to reach out anymore. No, it totally happens. I can't. Have, Folly Brewing did that to me about something. I can't remember. Oh, it was the coffee beer that I did with him last year with, mm. with mm. Meet Me for Coffee podcast. He listened to the podcast. He's like, "I'll make that beer." And then we did a release party <laughs> last December. It was, it was lots of fun. That's pretty cool. And then, so when you're working for on Nunso Vile, rather. Um, you worked with the Satanic Tea Company. Did you say they're out of Calgary? Yeah, they are, totally. Yeah. Interesting. Dominic. Dominic is amazing. The Satanic Tea Lord himself. He's amazing. And uh, he's releasing an album, and uh, someone might have done a guest vocal spot. Someone. Who could that be? Yeah. He's really cool. I like him very much. I'm working on a new project with him as well. Not music, like tea. What do you bring to the table as somebody who's more on the beer side of things when you're trying to make a tea? Oh, I put the right people in the right room. That, that's, that's, that, that's all I can say about that one. <laughs> it's, 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 it's like over a year in the works, and we all want to do it, and it's just a timeline thing. When it comes out, it's going to be extremely successful, and I can't wait for it to happen. I like to put people together. It's, it's something that I really like to do. Is I'm thinking about starting a new podcast. No, it, it's still up in the air. I, I'd like to start another segment for the podcast where I just introduce people. I was like, you guys need to be friends, because I do it all the time. I, I love doing that. It's like a, another big perk of the podcast is putting the right people in the room together mm -hmm. that's something that i love to do that's actually something i haven't heard either before like introducing people it's an interesting perspective absolutely i just did i did it last i do it all the time i, I love doing that I, I did it with uh with uh, gabe mangold from enterprise earth and the basis of beyond creation they have like this unique thing mm -hmm. and they're like they live in tiny houses basically and, and Gabe is like an expert, tiny house builder. So I was like, you, you, you need to hang out with this guy. It's like, you guys have to be friends. I, I love doing that. How do you keep track of so many people? I don't, I'm, I am, I'm lucky. My brain just keeps, I'd say pointless information. It's not pointless information. It's very important information. <laughs> For me, it's very important and people are very important. But I, I just, it just, 
it works. I don't know. That's how it is. I keep trying to delete my 5,000 friend limit on Facebook, <laughs> and I go through it, and I'm like, I know you. I remember you. <laughs> you. Okay. And then <laughs> keep going. And I'm like, okay, this guy doesn't exist. He deleted his account. Okay. I don't feel so bad deleting him. <laughs> but I know them all. Yeah. That's pretty cool. It's 2007, so you're coming up on, what, 15 years? 16 years almost with Cryptopsy? Yeah. How does it feel looking back now and seeing kind of where you've come from where you started with the podcast, with Cryptopsy, and obviously like Three Mile Scream and everything else that you've been involved in? I'm proud. I'm proud at what I've built in this tiny area right here with my wife. Uh, everything that's happened is a very focused conversation. and We, we deviate and we re-examine uh, where everything is going um, Every so often, I'm, I'm at the point now too where I'm doing three months on, taking a month off, and then three months on again. That's something that's brand new, but it's something that we've decided that we need to do so we could really hyper-focus exactly what's happening in all aspects of what in my life. Mm-hmm. Well, you've talked about, I'm, I'm sorry. I said I'm proud, obviously, of everything that's been accomplished. I feel like I'm a much better death metal vocalist than I was when I started. I feel like I'm a better host then when I started now I'm starting to host like things live like as a hired host which is something that I don't think I would have ever thought I would have done before starting the podcast it's cool I'm doing it actually this Saturday for there's a, a group uh, of Quebec metalheads there's 20,000 uh, members of this group on Facebook and they're oh, celebrating shit. their 10th anniversary in Trois-Rivières and there's a show with a bunch of great bands from here like Anonymous Barf um I should have written them down. Um, but I'm hosting that, and that's going to be super stoked. I'm super stoked about that. Um, beat the Mailman. Adonem. Damn it. Sorry. Yeah. There's just something about Quebec metal, man. Like, there's so much good shit that comes out of that side of the country. It's because we push each other, and we're all intertwined. It's unbelievable. I just interviewed Growler's Choir, and all those people are connected to someone else. And it's, it's unbelievable, the, the, the scene that we have here, and how everyone is, is intertwined. Mm-hmm. We walk into a show, and you can't not see someone that you know. Yeah, I get that feeling. That's what everyone seems to tell me. If you try to leave, that's, it takes forever because you've got to say goodbye to everyone. <laughs> to say goodbye, yeah. It's like leaving a wedding. <laughs> that's why you just <laughs> ghost it and say, fuck, I'm out of here. No, I can't do that. No, that's the worst. No, where's Matt? I bought him a beer. Oh. <laughs> yeah, he's lying down in the dish somewhere. <laughs> no, no, no. That's a Lord Worm story. That's a true story. Yeah. Listen to episode with Lord Worm, the first one. He tells that story. Sounds good. He almost died. He almost died in a dish. <laughs> that's, that's not good. I'm glad he didn't die. But The alcohol saved him. Interesting. It's true. I'll definitely have to take a listen to that. You've obviously accomplished a lot, and you're always forward-looking. So I'm wondering if you, uh, if there are any plans to kind of revitalize Three Mile Scream, or is that something that's kind of been put away for good? No, it's it's sort of sadly impossible. One of the main members that's very important to the the core of the band has multiple sclerosis, oh, and he's it's a very deteriorated state. So sadly, that band is is no longer a possibility unless we do like a show for him where he chooses guitarists to replace him. This is me like thinking as creatively on the spot right now. Mm-hmm. That's the only way I would see that happening. We did sort of do like a little revival in 2011. There's some YouTube footage of that. Uh, and uh, yeah, it was, uh, no, three miles, three miles is not going to happen anymore, I don't think. Fair enough. Is there a way that it, um, people looking to support him uh, would be able to for MS? No, no, he's very, he's off the grid and he would be upset if, even just listening to what, anything I just said. Mm, fair enough. <laughs> <laughs> My last question, I guess, for you tonight, Matt, is, um, well, actually, there's two more. One should be obvious. The second one, maybe not so obvious, is what styles of music do you normally gravitate towards, and who are you, some of your favorite bands? Uh, I d- listen to metal, but I primarily really like post-metal. 
Mm. I listen to a lot of like droney, sludgy stuff. I'm getting more into electronic the older I get. Uh, I like Ghost. <laughs> not, not everyone likes Ghost, but I really like Ghost. They're catchy. I don't know. I like how you say that like a question. I like Ghost. I know, man. I'm waiting for the. For the it's like I wear Crocs, you know? Like, <laughs> <laughs> it's the same thing. I like a lot of stuff. I listen to a lot of music. I listen to music all the time. I, I really, really like a lot of music. I like Secret Chiefs. I like Mr. Bungle. I like uh, Lamb of God. New album is pretty good. That song, Ditch, I, I dreamt last night that I wrote Randy telling him that I like that song, Bitch. So I have to, but after this, I'm going to write Randy and tell him that I like that song. <laughs> Hopefully he responds. Um, <laughs> I like, you know, Decapitated. I like Suffocation. I like, um, I like lots and lots and lots of bands. I, um, that new Slipknot is a miss, though, sadly. Yeah, it didn't hit me in any way, shape, or form. I don't know. Corey might, might call us out and give a shit, but. That's okay. That might spur a conversation on the podcast, which I'd also appreciate. Um, <laughs> I don't even think he'd waste his time with me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. There's lots of great music out there, right? There's um, I like Sleep Token. Not so much the new album, but the one before. Mm -hmm. I like Spirit Box. The first album, not that new one, just came out. Um, <laughs> you mean their EP or the... Um, fuck, no, I forget the name of it. The no, one I like that came the out Eternal, last year. Eternal, Eternal Blue. Blue is really, yeah. I like yeah. that very much. Recently, I have been listening to... I'll, I'll just do the recent, but they'll be more easy for our brains. I was listening to Get the Shot on the Way Home. That was good. That was fun. Um, the New Lamb of God. Um, Garia, very good, that new record. Ken Mode, noisy, but very good. Uh, Behemoth, the new one that didn't hit me. Crippleback Phoenix, I like that very much. Uh, Holy Fawn, oh, I love that. That's that's my, my jam. Uh, like that very much. I'm all over the place. I, I oh, you know what I really like? A Psy, that new Psy record. Mm -hmm. The Japanese uh, technical death metal band, I guess, there. So good. That's I'm it. trying to think of the album cover. One second. Shiki, Shiki it's called. It's this one. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Yeah, no, I love that album cover. Oh, it's so good. Russian Circles. Russian Circles recently. That's just recently. Um, really good. Lots of really good music this year, right? Um, Zeal and Ardor. Love, love. Oh. So good. Like, first time I listened to that Zealand Arter album, it didn't hit me, but then I went through and listened to it a second time. I was like, Jesus Christ. Yeah. Like a marathon. He, he played that he played that show the other day. It was a marathon. I've never seen someone play so many songs. Back to back. Just so good. So good. There's lots of I listen to lots of stuff. Death metal is not there that often though. You have to stay diversified, right? It's it's just me. It's, it's who I am. And in the house I listen to a lot of Frozen too. <laughs> <laughs> I guess my last question for you then, Matt, is and this is one that should be obvious, is if people are looking for your music to support you guys, where's the best place to find it? Oh, I thought it was going to be what my hangover cure is. Cryptopsy.ca is, is a website that we used to have that redirects you to Facebook. Mm -hmm. that's, that's a good place. There's a lot of hub, central hub of what we post uh, those there. If you want to find our music, streaming platforms, Bandcamp, whatever you want to do, uh, we, have, we have stuff being sold on indie merch. There's stuff being sold uh, via Hammerheart over in the Netherlands if you're over there. Just check it out. Just, just Bandcamp is always a good spot. And just because you mentioned it, uh, do you have a hangover cure? <sighs> Moderation, uh, sleep, hydration, uh, exercise, um, Pedialyte. I'll just name all the, the most popular ones. Um, that that's and suffering. Awesome. Well, Matt, I want to thank you again for taking this time, especially out of your busy schedule. And um, it's been an awesome opportunity to chat with you. So I hope to keep in touch. And thank you again. I really appreciate this. Hey, thank you, Jeff. It was a pleasure. Cheers. It's, a, it's not a video podcast. <laughs> I like it either way. Either way.